The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Welcome to a new episode of Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. Your host today is Reinhard Schumacher and my guest is Maria Bach. You have already heard Maria's voice in the introduction because she is a fellow co-host of this podcast. And besides her main job as a podcast host, Maria is an assistant professor at the economics department of the American University of Paris. She's my guest today because she recently finished her PhD at King's College London with a thesis on the history of Indian economic thought, which will be the topic of our talk today. The full title of her thesis is Redefining Universal Development from and at the Margins. Indian Economics Contribution to Development Discourse, 1870 until 1905. Welcome, Maria. Hi, thank you for having me. Let's start with the, the motivation of your research. In the history of economic thought, Indian thought is, to put it mildly, not the most prominent topic, at least not among Western historians of economic thought. How did you get interested in the history of Indian economic thought? Well, so as an undergrad, I got really interested in development economics. I found it fascinating that there were models that applied um, better to um, another part of the world um, that I was always quite fascinated by. And, and, and at SOAS, I got really interested by the history of, of Indian economic development. So so kind of economic history, more so than history of economics. And at the same time, I, I, I had been fine the Marxists at SOAS that told us about the marginalist revolution, and I got really fascinated by history of economics. And, and I wanted to kind of combine those two topics, India and history of economics, and, and ended up writing a thesis, a master's thesis, on um, how the classical economists, such as Adam Smith, wrote about India. Um, and that was then my, my the first year of my PhD, was that was the project I was working on. And while I was trying to figure out what was happening in India at this time. So kind of reading economic history texts about India in this period. Uh, I, I came across Renade, Mahavada Govind Renade, one of the protagonists that I write on in my thesis, um, and his works on, on the Indian economy at the time. And I, as most readers of Renade, they come across his, his really famous lecture called Indian Political Economy, where he announces that there should be an Indian economics. Um, and then I realized that that was a much more interesting topic that hadn't been done as much. Um, and that then got me into um, understanding um, or, or wanting to explore how this school of economic thought that started in, in the late 19th century conceptualized an idea of development. The reason I went, you know, did the idea of development is that that's really my interest um, and focus the project as well. Before we go into the details of your thesis, um, let's talk a bit about the state of research. Is there a lot of literature on the history of Indian economic thought? I guess most or many listeners of this podcast might not be familiar. Is it a topic that gets attention by research in India, for example? Right. So there is some stuff. There's there's clearly not as much stuff as on on your topic, Adam Smith. Um, but but there are there are there are plenty of historians. Um, more so based in um, America than in India, actually. A lot of them are Indians, but they've, they've 
um, did done most of their studies in the U.S. and and they are um, kind of cultural historians, um, sometimes intellectual historians. Um, one of them is a is is also an economist. Um, so it's really multidisciplinary, and th- there is um a lot of work that started in the kind of late 20th century trying to kind of rewrite the nationalist movement giving agency to the nationalists um and 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 contextualizing them more right so rather than using them just for a political movement right because the the early nationalists that i the protagonists that i explore in my thesis um were, were the early nationalists they were the first uh, kind of um elite to start fighting for independence um and they've always just been treated as nationalists and 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 not anything else and that's kind of my main aim in my thesis is to to also bring them up as economists so this this late 20th century um historical research was about taking these characters and going okay what did they actually do what did they write what kind of ideas did they come up with you know the the fact that they were elite um and so on so there, there was it was giving a bit more nuance to the story of these of these nationalists um so that that started to come and and i mean i would say there's like five ten sources that are that are must reads um and as i said most of those scholars are based um in the us in india i've had a much harder time finding people that work on this there is shamin gadut Gadujie at the um, JNU now, who's a PhD student working on Indian political economy at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. Um, so, so it's exciting to see that there's more stuff coming now, but it is still pretty limited, yeah. And um, you try to uh, trace the discourse around economic development by Indian economists. Let's briefly talk about your research method. Um, you decided to use positive discourse analysis. Can you briefly explain this method and discuss why you chose it? Right. Um, I, I'm going to try to be brief because, as, as you know, the workshop that we organized right in Antwerp and on on methods in the history of economics, because we were frustrated that there was there was no training or no advice for 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 PhDs in in our field. I I, I struggled with this question quite a bit. Um, because it's never really made explicit in history of economics what research methods are used. Um, so positive discourse analysis, you know, I, honestly, I think I, I was kind of channeled into that kind of uh, method through my supervisor who uses that quite a lot, um, Valbona Muzaka at King's College London. And and um, and the reason it's interesting, so, so first of all, reason why discourse analysis is interesting is because it contextualizes words, right? Dialogue, and 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 kind of assumes that the dialogue only has its meaning within its context. So it helps you set up kind of a step-by-step method to contextualize texts, essentially. Um, and then the reason I chose positive discourse analysis is that positive discourse analysis is a part, is a kind of a branch of this type of method that tries to we um, give agency to unheard voices. So that's why it's it's positive, right? It's trying to unearth um, voices that have been kind of denied attention before. Um, or, you know, and I'm not saying that, that, that the protagonists I look at have never been read before or have never been talked about before. Of course, as I just mentioned, they have. But, but it's clearly um, they're not as researched as other scholars, right? 
Um, and so and so the positive part of, of the, my method is is trying to say, look, um, these Indian economists are seen as inferior to the British intellectuals at the time and the European intellectuals, but they still have a voice and they still have enough agency to um, come up with new theories and, and thoughts and, and explanations as to how our economy uh, works. And then just um, quite, kind of quickly about what this method means in, in you know, a bit more concretely. I mean, the first thing is that you need a, a theory about how meaning making is produced. So I use Michael Bakhtin, a Russian theorist from the beginning of the 20th century, who says, again, you know, meaning is only produced in context. Um, and in dialogue, so it's, you know, a text is written for someone. Whenever you write something, you think about your audience. Um, you also you also write expecting a certain response. So you're going to be writing certain things because you um, kind of foresee certain reactions. Um, and so that's the first step. And then, and then the second step is this contextualization. So I did, I used a lot of economic history, a lot of economic um, economics research to understand the context in India at, at, during my period of time. Um, and then I did a very specific kind of textual analysis, right? So um, what were the kinds of rhetorical devices that they used? For example, in the lectures, that the that they, there's a lot of published lectures. It's kind of the biggest output type of output that my protagonist had. They would, at the beginning of the speech, start by thanking the British for all that they'd done for India and then by the end of it they they had you know they were saying that Britain had completely ruined India's economic prospects so and that that's a really rhetorical device to to say okay we're gonna we're gonna be gentle at the beginning and nice so that people start listening and then by the end of it we're gonna you know entice them into our arguments and our our um, way um, of thinking um, you mentioned now um, lecture notes. What kind of documents or sources did, did you analyze besides lecture notes? Probably books and articles they published, but did you also look at correspondence or anything else? Yeah, good question. So, yeah, so they, at the time, I think it was very normal for um, intellectuals to publish lectures and articles in collected works. So, so Renate, for example, who published kind of less book-like um, manuscripts than the other two that I look at. He died kind of prematurely in 1901. And so the first two collection of essays and speeches that he has was published quite soon after that, kind of as a, as a, a tribute to him. Um, and so they are um, lectures, um, articles. He started a journal, uh, a, a journal of kind of Indian economics as part of a, a movement that he um, was involved in trying to merge Western and, and, and Indian um, thought around spirituality, but economics and politics as well. Um, and, and so he published widely there. So I read a few of those articles, but a lot of them are in these collected works. He wrote one book as well, as I said, but much, much shorter than the other two protagonists. Then, um, Naruji Dabra Naruji, who's very famous for his drain theory, he wrote a whole book um, on poverty and un-British rule in India. And again, the, there are articles in there. Um, mostly, it's not it's not a book like a book that we would think of today, right? The other protagonist that I look at, Ramachandra Dutt, he he has one book 
that's just essentially letters to a particular British official. You know, and one letter even says, I've been waiting three months for a response. Um, so so the, 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 the books are not, yeah, they're not like the ones we would read today um, per se. Um, there, there are then also correspondences that have been published later on in the late 20th century, especially um, for Naruji. Um, and that's, it's work that hasn't been done as much in India as it has been in Europe. Because um, these economists are very famous in India. And if you've studied um, history and economics and politics in India, you will have read these scholars, right, at, at undergraduate level. Um, so they are famous, but they, yeah, they don't have as much private papers are not as available for these individuals as much as they would be um, in Europe. A lot of it is said to be blamed on the, just the climate that paper just doesn't last as long. But this is not my this is not my expertise at all. But um, it's it's some more and more stuff is surfacing, and um, and I clearly had already way too many things to to look at, so I had plenty of material. You mentioned now that you had uh, you have three main protagonists, and that they are widely known in India. But how did you decide? who to include in your analysis and why these three? Yeah, so th that was really tricky. The The idea at the beginning, of course, was, you know, to look at the whole kind of early school in the late 19th century, which are around nine individuals. And I, I went with only looking at three of them, and they're really the three main ones. And so the reason I, I decided on those three were for several reasons. One being that because they were the most famous, they'd written the most. So that means that I've read uh, kind of almost, I would say, around 50% of the school's output during these 35 years that I focus on. Um, so I thought that that was, that, that made sense then to to concentrate on these three. And, and they're also from three different backgrounds. Um, you know, Dutt is in Calcutta, Renate and Naruji is in, um, in, in Bombay. So the, the, they're from different parts of India as well. They, they also have different opinions around development and different theories. And even, you know, there's a letter that I found between, um, between Naruji and another um, individual called Wacha arguing that Renate was completely wrong about setting up a different school of thought. So there were definite, definite disagreements between these individuals, which I thought was really interesting because I'm not one to, you know, impose a consistency and, and, and um, of, of the, of the scholars I look at, it's much more interesting to understand where the contradictions are, where the disagreements are that gives us much, gets us much closer to, The real, their real understanding of, of, of the economy and their theories about it. So yeah, that's essentially it. Okay, one last question regarding the uh, method. Are all their works published in English or did they also publish in local languages? Are their works then translated or how did you deal with that? Right. So, okay. So this is during the colonial um, period, right? So during the empire. And so the, these economists that in starting kind of in 1870 were becoming influential in the political spheres and starting up the, you know, the Indian National Congress, for example, um, in 1885, if I'm not getting that wrong, um, where they could actually go to the government and talk 
you know, two government officials about policy, right? They didn't have any voting power or anything like that, but they, they had at least a platform to talk, right? So they had to do that in English because if they didn't, then they wouldn't be heard or understood. So the majority of their works were written in English. And it's interesting because even in their letters were written in English for two reasons I can see. One being that India has many different languages, and so English was a language, you know, of the elite, meaning of the elite, and, and then the elite could talk to each other, right? And then the other thing is, and this is really clear, quite clear in a lot of the letters is that they wanted it in English so that people would read them. They knew they were censored. They knew that they were read, these letters. Um, and if they were in English, then they would, it would just be another forum for them to be to be heard. You know, Renade did write in his mother tongue, Marahati, because um, he wrote a lot about that state, a Western state of India. And so, I'm, you know, there are stuff on that. And that is there is work being done on that at the moment. That that's not where I am. I mean, I didn't I didn't read that. I don't read those um, languages either. Maybe one day I will. Um, but I was, and I, and I am quite convinced that I read you know some ninety percent of their works and got a really good sense of what they wanted the British administration to do for India in terms of development, what kind of policies they wanted to implement, and so on. Okay, so let's turn to India then. Um, let's start by looking a bit at the Indian history in the 19th century. I guess not all listeners might be too familiar with it. Um, but in order to understand the ideas and theories advanced by the Indian economists at the time, the economic history of India is important. Can you briefly give an overview of the economy of India during the period you cover? Are there any notable, noticeable events or developments in the second half of the 19th century that we should know about? Yeah, absolutely. So so um, the British crown took over India in the mid-19th century um, after what they called the Indian Mutiny, which is when a revolt of the Indian people against the, the administration, and, and it really shocked the British. And so then they kind of took over a more formal, you know, imperial rule over India. And and at first, you know, elites were were positive about this. They thought, okay, we'd have an even stronger connection with this very, very industrialized, developed country. Um, they set up um, universities around this time in the 1850s to educate the Indian elite in Western education. And that's, that's where... The protagonists that I look at are kind of the first graduates of this kind of politics, economics, and history degrees that they were that they studied, and they then realize kind of by 1870 that things are not going very well for India. We have um, deindustrialization, which is a complex topic, and Tinkerter Roy at the LSE has clearly showed that it's not quite as clear cut as just saying Britain deindustrialize India. Clearly, the handicrafts industry was was dying out, but It may have done so anyway, but it was getting becoming really difficult to compete with Britain, of course. But other countries were dealing with this, not just not just India. Um, so the, the more and more people were losing work, right? So these handicraft textile, you know, artisans that had been uh, making money off of, of of selling their goods uh, were not able to do so anymore. So they were then reliant on agriculture. So what happens during this period is that they see a clear shift where the agricultural sector is becoming more and more dominant. 
Um, and clearly the British wanted the raw cotton for their cotton industry in Manchester. Right. So this was a big, big issue at the time. And, and my protagonists write about this a lot. That's one thing. The second thing is that there were um, some really, really severe, severe famines during this period. And they were really the worst in Indian history so far. Right. So it wasn't that India had never experienced famines before, but they were much, much worse. Right. And Roma Shanda Dutt, one of my protagonists, comes up with, you know, it's what I call the precursor to Amrita Sen's theory, which is that, look, it's not a question of the lack of food, a lack of supply of food. It's the, it's the lack of access to food, right? So people had become poorer because of the, of the deindustrialization um, and the kind of the overall impoverishment of the Indian economy. And, and therefore, people during times of famine, when food prices go up, they weren't able to, to buy food, right? Then there was a lot of, obviously, some some exports as well to Britain, right? There were actual, you know, grain exports during the famines to to Britain, uh, when clearly the grain was needed needed in India. And then um, there was also this, as I said, this political movement, right? That the early nationalists that started in 18, um, around 1870 with Naruji's paper on the needs and wants of India saying, look, we, Britain is clearly not meeting our needs, not understanding our needs. We, we need better policy. And in 1885, they managed to, to set up this Indian National Congress, as I, as I said, as a, as a forum for them to kind of vent their frustrations with, with the current context in, in India. So let's turn to the economics profession itself. You write in your thesis, and I quote now, the position of Indian economics at the margins of discursive space offered a unique perspective that, en that enabled Indian economics to discursively innovate at the margins of the development discourse. And in order to understand how, the Indi or how Indian economics was at the margin in the mid-19th century, it seemed that uh, in India, which was under British rule, probably the rulers were listening mostly to British intellectuals and economists, so that was a rather Eurocentric view. And if I understand it correctly, um, Europeans often depicted um, their own economy as something to be emulated, and they described India or portrayed India as rather underdeveloped and backward. And India should follow the or should emulate the European model. Is that correct? And was that the view of uh, the British administrators in the mid nineteenth century? Yeah. So there were there's lot there were lots of discussions in throughout the nineteenth century, kind of what to do with with India. And a lot of the time, it was to just legitimize the colonial rule, right? Which a lot of historians like John Wilson um, have proven quite well. But you know, we have James Mill, who's in the India office. I'm um, talking about the fact that the Indians are are barbaric and barbaric and 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 underdeveloped and so on, and he's saying you know we they need the kind of they need the British almost as parents to to, to you know hold their hands to to get them through um, this kind of lower stage of progress up to a higher stage. And I say parent because they really and they really they call Indians childlike um, quite often. Um, and, and then you have people like Henry Maine, um, who talk about the fact that India has a different um, legal structure, 
then it's a communal um, legal structure that's different from Britain and we, they should, you know, they should get rid of that. But yeah, and by the mid 19th century, because of this Indian mutiny, because of the revolt that happens, they get then a bit scared about, wait, if we just intervene, we, we, we may be intervening too much in the Indian economy. Maybe we need to keep it the same and, and then it can eventually develop. So it's a little bit more nuanced than just saying it's that their opinions were Eurocentric. Clearly, they their goal ultimately was that, or at least in writing, was that India would go through the same stages of progress as Europe, but they weren't quite read there yet, right? And and they were their lower stages were perhaps slightly different from from Europe's, and so therefore they should they should help them stay intact. To some extent, now you you mentioned this this my quote about the position of the Indian eco- economics at the margins of discursive space. The idea here is that they're also trying to nuance the ideas of progress and development at this time to adapt them to the Indian context. They they like the Europeans at the time say sure India should should industrialize India should um, will one day become as developed as Britain no problem. They're, you know, they're not Gandhi at all, right? They're not, they're not, they don't want a completely different idea of, of, of development. But they're saying that, look, okay, you, you Britain has now um, industrialized and they can't, they see that in the world, right? So this is where they're in a different discursive space, right? They, they see how, or they have a unique perspective rather, because they see Britain industrialized and they see them with this quite glorious history where they used to be the global suppliers of manufacturers goods and now they're not anymore and they're also ruled by foreigners and they're saying look we can we Britain can stay industrialized and they can be developed but so can we and actually by industrializing India and making India again a global supplier of goods we would actually then become richer and would be able to demand more goods from Britain, right? So this would actually be mutually beneficial. You start your analysis in 1870. What had changed in the economics profession that 1870 is a good uh, starting point? Did a new generation of economists then start working or was it that they were trained in India for the first time instead of being educated abroad or that there were Indian economists at all? Yeah, so this is a good question. So from from my understanding, it is really the when the first generation of Indian kind of modern Indian economists um, start publishing. So the the paper that I mentioned earlier about Naruji, the needs and wants of of India, which is the becomes the first chapter in his very famous book, Poverty and Un-British Rule, that's published in 1870. Um, and so that's why 1870 was was a, a useful year to me. This is the year, you know, when these this first generation of graduates from the British universities in India come out and have some economics training and start writing on economics on the economy. Um, were they educated uh, in India or were they educated in some Western universities in in Britain? So that depends on the person, right? Your three protagonists, I mean. So my three protagonists were um, mostly educated in India, as I said, Calcutta and um, Bombay. But the Naruji and Dutt went to and went to and worked in London. Dutt worked at UCL, for example. He taught there 
and and you know they they would have heard um they would have heard lectures by leading economists in Britain at the time. Okay, and uh, one more question about the period you cover. You consider the period until 1905. Why did you stop in 1905? Is it then your protagonist uh, stopped writing by that time, or were there major developments in Indian economics that led to a very new situation? Yeah, so this is a much this is much harder, and 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 clearly people can rightfully tell me I'm wrong here. But so I mean, first of all, Renate dies in in 1901. So, so he's he's obviously no longer writing in in 1905. The reason I chose 1905 is that in 1905, the Indian National Congress, this kind of blunt political um, party, declares its goal, its overarching goal, to get independence. That's the first time it does that officially, right? It's not that it's not that the goal wasn't always to get independence. You know, even the colonizing you know the civilizing mission right which was the this this discourse around why the british were there in the first place was about you know we're going to prepare india to be self-rulers later on so it wasn't that the goal wasn't there before but in 1905 it becomes more explicit so then the what naruji and dutt works on is much more about getting independence than researching the indian economy because this first period is when the economists believe that if they educate the British about their economy, then they can persuade them to change their policies. Now, some are more convinced by this than others. Renate is very convinced. Naruji, not really, but kind of thinks, you know, there's no harm in researching the economy anyway. And Dutt is kind of in between. So, and, and you know, the other scholars will kind of fall into those different that different scale but uh, so by you know kind of what i've found in the literature was really that 1905 marked this period where the early nationalist movement was over which was to me is to me is defined as this kind of researching the indian economy understanding indian history rewriting indian history in order to explain to the british that they were capable of progress um whereas as of 1905 it becomes a more active political project in bringing about independence now, you know, not in some future. Let's uh, talk about the um, idea of development that Indian economists proposed and that, as you argue, is different from Western ideas. Um, I quote you again in your thesis, you write, Indian economics had a unique set of multi-discursive and multi-spatial contextual de determinants that produced a distinct idea of development resembling the much more recent discourse of multiple or alternative modernities. Can you describe uh, briefly this distinct idea of development and how it differed from Western ideas of development at the time or even today? Yeah, so I don't want to over I don't want to over exaggerate how distinct it is, but it is unique in the sense that they actively you know discredit and 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 reject the idea of the international division of labor so based on ricardo's um comparative advantage where you know countries that are have a comparative advantage in agricultural goods should produce agricultural goods and those that are more efficient at producing manufactured goods should do that and then and then the world you know will just it will just work out everyone will be better off, etc. And they say, no, that's just not possible. If you have, you know, there are diminishing returns um, in agriculture. And so clearly a country cannot become developed 
um, with only agricultural production. So there, that's one one way in which it's unique. They're saying India can industrialize and should industrialize. As I mentioned earlier, um, they should industrialize in order to make Britain and Europe and, and the developed world even better off, right? Because if they're wealthier, then there'll be even more trade and, and kind of it's this idea that it's not a zero sum game. It's a positive sum game, right? It's, it's, it's that progress for all will be better for everyone. Then in terms of kind of uniqueness and distinct is, is the, you know, they pick and choose from different schools of thought at the time, different schools of, of economics at the time. And um, and build a set of policy recommendations that, as a whole, are unique. Like right? as the whole, they're unique. But but the individual parts are stuff that we've heard before. So they believe in um, temporary protection for their industry, so that they can build up their industry to become competitive on the global market. And then once they be- it becomes competitive on the global market, you get rid of the 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 tariff barriers, right? They they call them crutches, right? Which is Friedrich List specifically uses that word too, right? So here we have, you know, they're not they, they are grabbing those ideas from other schools of thought. So it's 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 unique in in its whole as well. And then and then this idea of the fact that it's a positive sum game, and the fact that they build an idea of a dependent economy, right? These are the first economists to start to to really um, theorize what imperialism is, right? Here we have a, a you know, a uh, kind of a superior country in the sense that it's more powerful, that takes over another country that is that is inferior because they were able to take it over, um, and they were creating an, an economy. So they were creating India as this dependent economy on their um, rulers, which was very, very destructive to to its development. It seems like um, I, most of us will have heard some of the ideas you propose. I mean, even the classical economists argue that it will be positive sum game, just a different one. And, and what you said that it's it sounds like Friedrich List and, and Alexander Hamilton, that you first have to protect your your not competitive industries. And once they are internationally competitive, they uh, you can introduce free trade. So was the ideal that once a country is developed, there should be free international trade, which is basically what most Western uh, economists were arguing for? Yeah, no, absolutely. They they called it you know the, it's like the free society that that Friedrich List talked about. Yeah. Did, so were they influenced many by by those Western traditions, or were there some? economic traditions in India itself or maybe from China that influenced them? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, they, they were reading mostly Western literature and they spoke some of the European languages too. So some of them would have been able to read, you know, German, for example, and German text. But um, yeah, so the Indian thing, this is actually another reason why I I, um, I stopped at 1905 because the, so there's this, there's this really famous text called the Ahadrastra, which I'm, I'm pronouncing completely wrong so I do apologize to our Indian audience but it's a it's a text um that came out kind of the second and third um century from India and is said to by many to be the first um kind of state manual 
So it's the kind of first text of political economy, how to run a state, etc. And that that had kind of disappeared in Indian history. Um, these these plaques were were just they were they were probably around, and some people may have read them and so on, but nobody cited them in in this period and really throughout the whole 19th century. And then they resurfaced in around 1905, and that's when you start to see them cited in. Uh, the textbooks that later come in in 1916, there's the first um, textbook of Indian economics, and there the Adarastra is cited, right? And this is an Indian text. But in my period, not at all. It's it's not, you know, the the only influence where they all have is is Renade, who talks a little bit about religion and caste. He will be reading um, texts from his state, his Western state, Maharashtra. But yeah, I mean, citations in this period is a bit tricky as I'm sure you see in your in your work too but yeah the it's it that's a it's a trickier question to mm-hmm. to answer but you you alluded to it that during this period of time there was some kind of deindustrialization going on in India and usually the development theories even foolish lists would argue that there's like there's progress and you go through different stages and you will start with an agricultural in an agricultural economy and then you industrialize slowly but now in india you had the deindustrialization and this was has to be seen as kind of a regression in economic development did they i don't know in the theories did they how did they deal with that was were they seeing india as regressing themselves or was that just were they still thinking of india moving forward Yeah, no, I'm really glad you brought that up because this is really one of the the more um, unique ideas that they brought back into economic thinking. In the 19th century, as, as far as I've understood in, in Europe, scholars didn't really think too much about regression because they were seeing progress all around them and they didn't feel the need too much to think about it. And And the only really, you know, people that were talking about regression was perhaps Karl Marx when he talks about, you know, after... Um, before you get communism, you get this, you know, state of, of um, you know, you get a re- revolution because things are just so bad. Um, and so regression was, was if it was theorized during this period, it was really theorized as the last stage or the stage before the last and so on. Whereas, you know, regression had existed in the Italian scholarship in the 16th century. And where and here, the Indians, they really bring it back. And they bring it back in terms of the dependent economy, as I spoke of earlier. But also this idea that it is very normal for a country to regress in some periods and progress in others, right? And, and they constantly, these two things are happening at the same time. In some periods, you can have more progress than regress. And so then that period is, is defined as, as progressive. And, and vice versa. Um, and and definitely the regression has to do with this, you know, the increasing dominance of the agricultural sector because the the industrial sector was decreasing. Um, and then you had the famines, right, as I said, was 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 happening because were so dire because people had were so poor already. Right. And you had Naruji, for example, who who was not the first, but kind of at least the first to popularized the the, the 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 idea of national accounting in in India in in 19 um in the 19 in the 1870s he uh, took some statistics from the late 1860s and worked out the the kind of what today would be the GDP per capita 
Uh, and then he worked out the cost of living and figured out that these two figures were com completely different, right? So you had cost of living that were actually higher at 34 rupees per capita uh, per year. Um, and the, 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 the national output, the gross national output was at 20 rupees per capita per year. Right. Um, and that's a real for him was a real sign that India was was impoverished and, and was experiencing regression. OK, but they were th still thinking that India would recover and and further develop. I mean, in the in the period, I mean, in the 19th century, it seemed that economists in the West were rather optimistic. Even Marx was optimistic in the end. In the 18th century, which I studied quite a bit, they were rather Uh, fearful of the future because they were comparing themselves to the Roman Empire and were fearing that they will end up the Western societies will end up like Rome and come down and fall. Like there was this theory of growth and decay. I don't know. This was something the the Indians picked up on that because you said that there's also some, always some periods of you will grow and you will go down again. Or were they rather optimistic that there will be long-term progress of society, like most Western economists at the time were thinking of? Yeah, no, th this growth and decay is clearly, I mean, so clearly they were returning to the kind of 18th century um, thinking. Yeah, that the, 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 you would have growth and decay, but no, they were very, that doesn't that did not mean that they weren't optimistic because to them, the, lar the largest reason for the regression was the colonial, you know, the imperial rule. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so if they were able to um, be independent, um, industrialized, then then they could um, progress to a higher level of progress. Let's talk a bit about the the political conclusions or the policy recommendations they drew from their ideas and theories. Um, did they have a huge plan for Indian development? You alluded to it that they were arguing for like independence or for independent development, but did they build up an overall political program? Um, how to move forward or how to get India out of this regression? Yeah, and they didn't necessarily all agree on this, right? But but they know they did put together um, an elaborate plan. Um, one of them, as I said, they, they, they want tariff barriers and subsidies for their industry in order to make it competitive on the international market, which then meant you know that they could have sustainable industrial development right because if if they um, if they if they could get you know increase their wages their domestic wages then and increase the size of their middle class then they could actually uh, have enough demand for their for their indian um produced manufactured goods um then they talked a lot about foreign um investment right as britain obviously sent some money to India, for example, to build the railways, which they were very negative about because the railways to them was just a, a, a system by which the British could transport their goods into India and sell them there, right, and and, and put their industrial um, sector out of business, which, which it clearly did. Um, but but they were, they were for that foreign investment, especially Renate. He, he thought foreign capital is fantastic because it, Clearly, India was in capital scarce, and so they needed more foreign investment, but then they needed some control over what that was spent on. So they were for big um, projects like um, 
big infrastructure projects like uh, irrigation, especially, um, which was very problematic in India, and and which was n- so so the Mughal period before the the British period in India um, were much just generally those rulers were much better at dealing with irrigation and and during the British rule that was just not at all prioritized and and so irrigation was a huge problem. Were they also arguing for re-industrialization or are there any policies that they proposed how to re-industrialize India again? Because that was what they were seen as a problem, no? That they de-industrialized. Yeah, well, yeah, as I said, I mean, put, put tariffs on the, on imports and, and subsidize, like, for example, steel, um, the st- um, you know, the, subsidize the steel industry, for example, subsidize the, the textile industry, you know, try, try to produce try to keep the raw materials in india and produce you know goods like finished goods in india and were they at the time you said they saw the british rule and imperialism as part of the problem were they already arguing for national independence or just that the british would um, loosen their control over the economy how what were their recommendations in this regard yeah so that that I mean that's tricky to understand because um, you know that they would have they would have been very diplomatic during this period because they had just gotten this space to negotiate with the or to talk rather to to the British officials at the Indian National Congress so it's hard to know exactly what their exactly what their motivations were obviously but from my reading is that they definitely definitely wanted independence eventually for sure that, that there was no question about that but that in the meantime before they managed to get independence they wanted to um get the british to implement policies that would be useful to india and as i said then they thought they argued that that would then be useful to britain you know because if for example if you if you make the agricultural population better off then well then they they would be able to collect more land taxes. Um, yeah, they, they, there was a, although, yeah, about the land tax, I mean, they, the, Ramachandra Dutt argued quite viscerally for the fact that the Britain was charging too, too high land taxes. And this was one of the reasons also that the famines were so severe. Now, you know, kind of modern day economic historians say that that doesn't actually add up. They were paying quite very little rent. And actually that meant that even if the British administration had decided to invest in infrastructure in India, they wouldn't have had the money to do so because they were charging too low taxes. So there was there was this quite interesting discussion around, you know, what's the right amount of tax? What should the taxes be spent on? Because, of course, the Indian um, economists were like, well, taxes are good, but these taxes are not being spent in India. So, so they're bad, right? Because they're being reappropriated to Britain. And you mentioned that they tried to get their ideas heard with the British officials. Were there any exchange with British economists? You mentioned James Mill before. Did they ever meet, for example, James Mill and discuss their ideas? Or was there no direct contact? And it was more in there they tried to convince the the British um, rulers by their publications. Yeah, so um, Dutt and, and Naruji went to England. As I said, so and 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 Naruji actually um, was um, was an MP in Britain in 1892 um, for a borough in London. So so, so they so, so Naruji and 
would have sat in on a lot of lectures at Oxford. I think it was Oxford. Um, and Dutt, as I said, he worked at UCL. Um, it's a little bit hard to find exact connections. I know that Naruji was very involved with some of the, um, the women in the Bloomsbury um, group. Um, so, yeah, they would have had a, quite a bit of contact with British economists at the time. Um, not, not James Mill. I'm not sure James Mill was alive at this point. Um, but don't quote me on that. Uh, but, the, but John Stuart Mill, I think Naruji actually saw him in a lecture at one point. But this this information is a bit difficult to grab a hold of, and, and it's and it's really research that I want to do a lot more on because for now in my thesis I did a lot of the trying to understand who they quote, trying to understand if they use phrases that were exactly the same, like they use a phrase um, "status to contract," which is you know taken kind of directly from Henry Main. So that I I did that kind of textual analysis, but that that contextual. Who did they meet? Um, is is still a is is a little a little bit blurry. It's it's you know I have some information that I managed to get from reading secondary sources, um, but it's not systematic just because these scholars have not been researched as much. Yeah, I guess actually you are right. But James Mill must have been dead in the uh, when you start your for several decades by the time you start <laughs> yeah, thing. But I also think the Bloomsbury group only started in the early 20th century. So um, this might have been after the, I mean, their exchange might have been after the period of time you look at. But um, yes. let's move forward. Were they um, successful with their policy re recommendations in the sense that this were they were picked up by the British rulers and even implemented or did they mostly go unheard? Yeah, good question. So. Uh, the the one of the success rates is the tax, the land tax, right? That and Naruji managed to, with their, you know, Naruji with his drain theory idea that you know the the British were draining uh, Indian resources and 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 therefore actually diminishing the prospects for Britain to get any wealth from India in the future. Um, and Dutt's um, you know, quite extensive work in kind of field work in the agricultural sector. Um, got the the British administration to not lower the land tax, but but keep it um, constant for a long period of time. And then keep the money in India. Well, yeah, in the sense if you you know if you're charging if you're not increasing the land tax, then yeah, people are able to keep their grain rather than give it to the government. Yeah, that that was one of the success um, stories. The you know the rest uh, you know not not so much. In the end of the interview, let's turn to what we can learn from it. And in your conclusion, you write, and again I quote you: "The idea of development in Indian economics can be considered a contemporary tool for understanding societal change and how to harness positive forces of change." I contend that Indian economics idea of development gets us closer to a new definition of progress and development, which is useful for understanding divergent trajectories of societal change. So my question now, um, what can modern economics or what can we learn today from looking at or studying 19th century Indian economics and the discourse about development at the time in India? 
Yeah, I think I think we can, you know, that we talked about regression earlier. I think that their idea of regression is um is definitely something that is not as much um talked about and 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 I think their idea of how um political structures like the the, the empire can regress a country is is really helpful if you think about and 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 you think there's any truth to the neo-colonialism that that, that a lot of people argue is going on today. Um, and then just this idea that there are different trajectories um, that countries follow, right? That there are um, alternative ways to organize our economies and there are alternative paths to development depending on the history, right? So you're moving away from a Eurocentric idea of development, which I, I, I'm, I'm quite convinced is still rather dominant right so I, I, that's quite I mean that's quite overarching um, rather than detailed but that's how I think that this idea of development in, in economics can be helpful for us today I guess in, in and for our field for intellectual history I think it's important to understand that lesser known voices can can have really quite interesting ways of seeing the world just from the sheer fact that they are lesser voices right and um, that they have different perspectives that they are at the margins and from the margins of of discursive space right in these indian intellectuals were far off in a colony in india um not at the you know centralized the central core industrialized um part of the world um and yet and and that means that they have this different perspective on development and can give us new ideas about how to organize our our economies and so you know today when we have scholars looking at you know female economists and 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 so on in our field it's it's it I, I i think that's part of that project to understand that we don't we don't always need to go to the great um texts that it that it is legitimate to go to the lesser text, even though they might be shorter or I don't know, some, in some sense less significant. But of course, that's you know, that's obvious. That that's said with a lot of bias and 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 contextualized within a lot of power relations of what is a you know good text of political economy and what isn't. I mean, if you work on them, they might actually turn it. And if people get interested into into them in them. They might uh, become part of the canon at some point. <laughs> they might become great texts. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And I think that that's actually that that's actually something that I learned um, really, really well from the theorist that I that I use, Michael Bacton, who I mentioned earlier. He talks about this idea that there's a tendency in language for one idea or one yeah, one idea, one view of the world to dominate, but that doesn't mean that there aren't others around, other ideas that are alternative ideas that fight for that dominance. And that's just completely, it's always in flux. It's it's always going to be changing and so on. And that that's part of our, um, that's part of our intellectual work. Okay, one very last question. When you were looking, reading all these Indian texts, was there something that really surprised you, like the style or the content or, or anything that you were surprised by that you didn't expect? Maybe there wasn't anything, but I'm, maybe it's something curious. 
I think yeah, this is curious because I'm 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 from Sweden, so it's a lot to do with myself. But I was reading this book called Three Years in in Europe, published by Ramesh Chandra Dutt, and it was his travel log um, of his three years in Europe, and he goes everywhere. It is incredible. He actually goes to the little town and now we're north of Gothenburg where my father um, lives today. He was raised there. Um, he goes there to see the lock, which is a rather famous lock in Sweden. I mean, in, in Sweden. <laughs> um, that, that, that is this lock that is a canal that links the links kind of west to east of, of um of Sweden, so it goes. It's a it's a canal that goes from Gothenburg all the way to Stockholm, with with a huge lake in in between. And this lock is is very old and 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 was um, really innovative once when it was when it was built. And I thought it was phenomenal that this Indian economist intellectual had been there, right? Um, and of course that it that was such a close connection to me and my life. Um, and and then you know another example in Renade's text, similar kind of surprised me because I'm Swedish. He mentioned that that steel engineers, Indian steel engineers, went to Sweden to learn from Swedish steel engineers, right? Um, and that I I just thought that that I think it hit me how much. Um, how many connections we already saw in the world in the late 19th century, right? We we think that globalization started, you know, some 30, 40 years ago, and that's that's just not true, right? That, that these can, these global connections were happening, yes, you know, among certainly elite and certainly not a, a person like me 100 and, and some 50 years ago, but but um, but that those connections were there. Okay, I think that is a nice uh, anecdote to end. So I learned a lot of uh, on Indian economics today. Thank you for being a guest at our podcast. <laughs> uh, thank you, Maria. Well, thank you for having me, Reinhard. It was a great discussion. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Midair Machine, and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Noble Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Please find the link to the song and Krugman's speech, along with more information on each episode, on our website, ceterusneverparabus.net. Follow us on Twitter, ceterusnparabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.